everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be talking with Prue, the director and founder of Mission Possible, an organization whose mission is to support, educate, inspire, and activate individuals to rescue, rehabilitate, and rehome animals in need. Having started with one woman with one purpose, this organization has grown exponentially since its beginning and they are just getting started. So we are so excited to bring Prue on today to discuss the importance of branding, sustainability, holistic rehabilitation, and so much more. If you like this episode, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen in on similar stories. Other than that, let's go ahead and get started. Hiya, Prue. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Excellent. Doing so great. We're so happy that you're able to make time with all our different time change here to chat with us. Give us a glimpse into a whole different side of the world and a whole nother side of animal welfare itself. So you're Australian, yes? Yes, correct. And right now you've been living in Bali for a long time and working there. So I'm wondering, how did Mission Possible get started? Sure. It's a bit of a long story, but uh, I'll try and keep it short. So I'm born and bred in Melbourne, in Victoria, in Australia. I studied graphic design and then I ended up traveling overseas and working for maybe four years in London and then returned to Australia. And then I got the the itchy feet again, because you might know Aussies love to travel. After a few years being back in Australia and I'd lived in Melbourne and Sydney, my partner and I decided to go backpacking and to go traveling again. And he'd never done it. He'd never done let go of your job and your lease and just be free. So he went off to Nepal first and then I followed maybe a month after and together we basically explored Southeast Asia and India, Nepal, and wound up in Bali, Indonesia. So how we got here and then how I got into the animal rescue world is that when I was in Goa, in well, actually, no, backtrack, when I was in Nepal, I met a lady from who's English, lives in Goa and does animal rescue there. Uh, Rani, she runs I Love Goa Dogs. And she basically started talking about dogs and their conditions and things I never knew about because in Australia, we don't, where I'm from, we don't have stray population. Like I'm from the city. So everyone's got a pedigree, beautiful dog, and there's no tragedy that surrounds it, unlike Southeast Asia and the developing countries. And I guess after meeting Rani and her just teaching me that the kindest thing you can do is fill their belly. It kind of resonated with me. And then when I traveled, I'd see many stray dogs. So I'd try and stop and feed them. And then we're on our way back to Australia. And I just said to my partner, I'm not ready for the nine to five. I can't do the mortgage. I don't even know if I can do the kids. Like I'm just not there, which I was in my late, no, mid thirties. So I suggested Bali because it was close to Australia. It was close to our family. It was still cultural. It was still very different. It was affordable. And as a designer, I was working online so I could still earn an income, which I'd been doing pre the term, what do they call them? Digital nomads. So I was a digital nomad before it became cool. 
yeah, so we ended up here and where we ended up moving to was in Ubud in the centre of Bali and where we stayed there was a dog rescue close by and I volunteered but I volunteered as a designer. Like I, Well, I came in and said to them, look, I'll do anything but you need a rebrand like badly. And that's one thing in the charity space that I'm sure you find as well because your branding's beautiful and your marketing's fantastic but it's really important that a lot of charities miss the mark on that based on I guess, accessibility to those kind of uh, professions. That's then how I got involved with another group here who who was a not-for-profit and I rebranded them and helped them with their mission. But I think when you work with different charities, you see how they work and how you might do it differently. And I didn't want to be like that person that came and wanted to change everything, but it was just getting a bit frustrating that I couldn't do things that I could really see benefit the the not-for-profit and to benefit the animals. So then I think it was 2015, I registered Mission Plausible, the business name and the URL. And then I ended up being a solo rescuer because I ended up leaving that group and but still finding a lot of animals. And because I knew what to do, if you come to Bali, it's truly insane. It's insane how many stray animals there are. And so, yeah, I started rescuing and I started my platform and then I had my friends and family start joining because they knew me from the previous not-for-profit and then yeah getting registered was the biggest biggest part and the most important part for sure and then it's kind of snowballed since being registered as a not-for-profit in Australia. It's amazing I love your how your background came from something totally like different totally very corporate I think a lot of people don't relate that to like something that so many non-profits need. 100%. Yeah. Very first introduction to to everyone that you meet. It's like, here's my logo. And it's like, that can make or break things sometimes. Absolutely. I love that because I, I do think that that's incredibly important. I think even before, I think even when I was younger, like in, in high school or very early on in college, and I would get involved with organizations and whatnot, I do remember specifically that I would look to their logo and their aesthetic and how they sort of designed their website or their marketing and whatever. And that would almost validate the company for me or would make me feel like it was a legitimate, absolutely very organized business. So it it's I love that you say that because I do think it is incredibly important. And I do think that there are a lot of smaller rescues and rescues all over the world in general that definitely could benefit from, yeah, you know, tweak, tweaking up that game. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a huge rollout. Like it's just like, I guess, Obviously, being in design, I was in advertising and marketing. And now I'm working for something I love that I think it comes through a lot more through it. Like my previous job was, you know, selling marketing and branding and experiential events for car companies. Well, you know, I'm not really into cars, so I did it. Mm-hmm. But now when I'm doing it with dogs, like, and rescues and with love and with heart and with proper intention and purpose, like, you're going to create some incredible content naturally. But yeah, having your branding, it's just something that's so underrated in charity that's so important. And reflecting back on the other group that I supported in the beginning, their website was so hard to use. And I said to them, they were about to be on a TV show in Australia. I said to them, your website needs a refresh. Like, I can't even donate. And they argued with me. They were like, yeah, you can, you do. And I said, cool, show me how you do it. Take me through it. Like, I want to know how to donate. And they're like, you click here and then you click here and then you click here and you click here. And you click. I was like, dude, I'm gone. Like, I need to be in and out. I want to give you 50 bucks in 30 seconds. I don't want to be clicking around. And from that, they understood. They're like, oh, I was like, yeah, 
That's how you need to, people don't want to look around your website unless they really want to dive in. They're not going to want to click around. They want to get in, put their credit card in and give you 50 bucks. Well, no, I was about to say, I'm like, Sydney, is this the most practical piece of knowledge we've had on the podcast so far? I feel like, should we just end and just, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. (laughs) I feel like that's like the wisest thing too. It's like, yes, what do you want people to do? Have it on the homepage right there and mm-hmm. get make people see that right off the bat and help them get in and out as quickly as possible because who knows? I mean, one thing I've learned, like social media and content wise, I'm like, my attention span is so small mm-hmm. and everyone else's is smaller than mine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's like moments even I think I'm I like to think of myself as relatively young and and therefore pretty tech savvy. And there are times in which I can even get confused of so many buttons and so many links, so many areas to go that it's like, if I'm getting confused, I can only imagine somebody who's not necessarily as tech savvy, somebody who's not necessarily used to donating online or things like that. I can only imagine how difficult it would be for them to give a donation. And that's, that's something you're missing out on like that. Yeah. Instant. And people want to instantly give because they've been instantly affected by whatever you've posted. So it could be a really brutal rescue or it could be an amazing transformation. And they're like, oh my God. And they just want to give you money and you should allow them that honor to support you and your work. But in saying all that, like running our website's actually a nightmare. I can't, anyway, that's a whole tech thing. So again, I don't know if there's a simple platform to easily get people in and out to donate because I'm on WordPress. I'm not going to go all tech on you, but we've got a plugin that one day works and the next day it just decides not to work. And like we've spoken to the developers and they're really passive aggressive and not really answering us. And I'm like, dude, like, are you going to compensate us for the thousands of people we potentially have lost? I can't track it. I can only see a small snippet. But if that little thing is spinning for too long, they're gone. Mm-hmm. There's not a one-stop solution. And the, the bigger you grow, the bigger your website grows and the heavier it gets. So... Anyway, I guess my advice to people would be good branding and a one-page website just to start, which is donate. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that is very true. Like the more that you build on, the more complex it's going to be and the heavier (laughs) it is. And the more likely it's, there's going to be a little bit of issues here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But all that to say, I think everything that you've, you've said before is important still like tell what's important right off the bat right in that moment. Cause you're so right, especially in animal welfare, like emotion, it really drives so much action. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Well, so <laughs> aside from some of the, uh, some of these more practical aspects of it, you do so many interesting projects. It seems so like many. as an organization. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and maybe it's cause you've got such great branding. And so it's so easy for people to <laughs> donate. So you're able to do No, <laughs> no. I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about, first of all, we're very interested in hearing about your solo rescuers. Yeah, sure. Well, so I don't know when the term was coined or if it is even a term, but we started, I started as, I didn't know what I was once I left the, I lost my identity of being part of a particular organization. So I called myself a solo rescuer because basically it was just me and a backpack and a scooter and that's it, right? You're just solo. I don't have a catching team. To explain how Mission Plausible works, like we're very different to your generic shelter rescue model. I like to think we are. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're now falling into the same category. One of our key catchphrases, I guess, is to educate and educate, activate and empower. 
others. So we really want to help others to rescue. We really want to activate them and empower them with the tools they need to just save that puppy. And one of our taglines is together we can save them all. No, we can't. Mission Possible can't save them all. You can't save them all. Other groups can't save them all. But if everyone does something, we can all do, we can all save them all. In that tagline, what I mean is that you can rescue. No one's trained to rescue. I didn't go to university to learn how to rescue. I'm not from animal welfare background. I'm literally just a person who I like dogs, but I never thought I was dog obsessed. Like I didn't (laughs) think I was a crazy dog lady. But when you come to Bali, you kind of, you find purpose in doing it. And and like, I, sorry, I'm jumping around, but if I was in Australia, I wouldn't have nine dogs in my house. And I say this to people because people go, you have how many dogs? It's like, dude, I didn't go to the pet shop and buy nine dogs. Like I didn't willingly choose to have nine animals to clean and feed and love and be loved and have noise and chaos. Like this is actually what happens here. You find, you literally find animals. So on that, in finding the animals, I don't want to see dogs going into shelters. A shelter isn't a home. A shelter isn't love. It's a stopgap, yes, and I understand completely why we have them all over the world. I think in the Western developed countries where they have shelters, I think it gives people an excuse to get rid of their pet. I think that, you know, just take it to the shelter and get rid of it and they think that their job's done. But here we don't have shelters like that. We have shelters that literally hold dogs that have been abandoned on the streets. The solo rescuer, that's where I was at. So solo rescuing. So basically we if someone messages me on Instagram and says, I found this puppy, can you please come and get it? I'll be like, well, I'm really sorry. I'm a solo rescuer. We don't have a facility, but this is what you can do. And I'd really be grateful if you could save the animal because, you know, you, you put on a bit of the emotion because I literally can't take the animal in. And 98% of the time, they're really grateful for the help and the knowledge. And we've now got a solo rescuer form that people can fill in. And if we can, we'll financially support the medical and we'll coach them through the foster process and we'll coach them through the rehoming process. So this is again where I saw a hole, a hole in the overarching rescue world is that no one teaches you how to rescue and no one teaches you how to rehome because everyone wants to just give it to the shelter because they know what they're doing. It's their job, right? It's their, they've got the platform. Well, no, they don't. They've got donors that are following them from Australia or America or wherever, but they don't have adopters in Bali necessarily following them so you have to use your community pages and that's all I learn all this through doing and then I've shared that information with everyone else on the website and I now know that other rescue groups share our website and content to go this is what you need to do to rehome them and this is how you vet someone and this is these are the questions you need to ask and you have to check their home and don't trust everyone like I don't trust anyone like and you need to earn my trust (laughs) to have one of our dogs like it's not Mm -hmm. I want to get rid of all my dogs it's like no 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 you need to earn this dog because this dog's been through a lot and we've put a lot into it that I'm not desperate to rehome it to just anybody and that's again comes back to branding that I'm really trying to get the middle middle to upper class to realize rescue doesn't mean secondhand doesn't mean damaged it just means there's been some loser beforehand and you could be the hero and I think that that's again around our branding and marketing is that that's the demographic I'm trying to attract to our group without seeming like a a snob no I think that makes sense yeah I sometimes go hashtag snob adopter but these animals are are part of my world so I am going to be selective and if you don't fit the fit the criteria I'm sorry 
I'm not you we're not the place for you well that's why I always think it's so funny when people are like paying all this money for like this breeded puppy or whatever because it's like there has been almost especially with bad breeders etc there's almost no work that's gone into that animal whereas a rescue dog has had so much love and care and training and all sorts of things put into it it's like technically like that's the premium dog like that dog is going to be every rescue I mean I always make the joke that every rescue that I've seen come into our office is like the most well-behaved dog. Yes. They're little sweet angels. Really? Yes. Oh, our personal pets are not great. They're hellions. They're so terrible. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're so loved and spoiled. Yeah. Like there's a dog who's been traumatized and who has been through so much things, but they get rescued, they get trained, they, and they walk into the office and they are the most mellow, most well-behaved, like the most perfect dog. And then I bring my dog in. He's not so great. (laughs) (laughs) All the manners are out the window. Yeah. That, I mean, your past life doesn't dictate your future life. And that's the same thing for these animals. They are not secondhand. They can be just as good a pet as if you went and bought it at the pet store, if not better, because they are trained, they are taken care of. They're fully vet checked. Ours are fully vaccinated. They're going to be sterilized when they're old enough. Yet people will go to a breeder and honestly, dogs are only about $30 here. It's not a lot to buy a dog here. $30 to obviously $300 when you're going into the more higher bred ones. And they overlook, we've got barley dogs. So just to backtrack and educate around that, the barley dog is actually a breed. It's not just a dog from Bali. So you've got the dingo from Australia and then you've got the barley dog from Bali. And they're actually the purest breed in the world. So when people say, I've got a pure breed, I'm like, no, you don't. Like, that's the purest breed. <laughs> I've Stevie's the blind one and he can't see, obviously, and then he'll bumble around and then run into another dog and then chaos. <laughs> but, yeah, this lady said we were at an adoption event and she had a chocolate lab and I was like, these are pure valley dogs. And she goes, well, this is a pure breed. I was like, well, no, it's not. It's man-made. And she's, she was shocked. She was like, what? And I was like, this is the purest breed in the world. It's 12,000 years old. Its DNA has been tested. They're dying out. They're being interbred. You've got a Labrador that's man-made. Like it's been created that way. And that's something that's really hard for people to get their head around, that these dogs are incredibly smart, loyal, independent. They're the perfect size. They're under 20 kilos. So they're perfect male or female dog. Um, they're not too small. They're not too big. They've got short hair, but yeah, they're, they're, they're the pure breed. So none of these pure breeds are pure breeds. They're mutants is what I call them. They're all still cool. <laughs> oh no. I still love them all, but they are man-made. These dogs aren't. It's funny that you say that you wouldn't have this this whole like pack of dogs in your home if you were back home. Because I feel like so many people have said that to me too. Like, I didn't know you were so obsessed with dogs. And I'm like, well, like, I wasn't. <laughs> and then you start doing this work and it's so rewarding. And you see the instant like gratification of like a dog just needs a little care. And then you're like, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you've got purpose. And I think so many people miss that in their lives now, especially is having a purpose. So like we've had people who have adopted and then come back and thanked us for the animal because it's helped them through such hard times. It's given them a reason to get out of bed. It's given them a reason to keep moving forward when they've had really, you know, tough moments. And and I think in a rescue, I mean, I've had pedigrees as well. 
I love them just as equally, but they don't have the backstory that my rescues have. So I think I look at my rescues differently and think, God, what have you come from to react that way? Or I'm so blessed to be the one that you have loved and trusted to be your person. Whereas when you buy a dog, you literally buy it like a jumper, like a T-shirt. When it's a rescue, you have to have a bond or else it's not going to work. Absolutely. I imagine that there's something really like internally self-satisfying about befriending and getting an animal to love and trust you and believe in you when in the past it's had people that have put it down. It's like the resilience of animals and getting to experience it and getting to play a role in that animal's regrowth or the retrusting. I imagine that that in itself. Absolutely. It's just more than anything money can buy. Oh, it's not easy, but it's so rewarding. I mean, it is easy. There's some that are super, super easy, but there are some that are super hard. So I've got Lucy at the moment, and I don't know if you followed her story. She was found with fishing wire around her snout. We don't know if that was a dog meat thief, like they'd caught her and she escaped, but it had been on there for some time and had really cut into her her muzzle and... She was rather thin, but she had a really good coat and it was just a very odd story. But the rescuer who found her messaged me and said, please, can you help? And I saw it and I was like, hell yeah. Like there's sometimes dogs that I get asked to help and straight away I'm connected. And I'm like, yep, I'm in on that one. Uh, Charlie's another one. For some reason, I just said, yep. Anyway, Charlie's another great story. But Lucy, yeah, had the fishing wire and her trauma has been so bad. I've had her since April, May, June, July, so three months now. And only yesterday she came up to me on her own and sat next to me. And I've documented and I put it on Instagram and loads of people are like, oh my God. So if anyone's new to the account would think, okay, this is so not that impressive. Like the dog lay next to you. From the get-go, she wouldn't let anyone touch her. I can't pick her up. She'll bite me. If, if you put a towel or anything near her to put it over her head to try and pick her up, she'll snap. Because I know that all of this, if she hears a plastic bag, a lot of dogs have plastic bag trauma here in Bali because they've been trapped in a plastic bag. So any time of that crinkle, Mm -hmm. they freak out. And so Lucy, she freaks out to everything. Even the wind can freak her out, the drop of a leaf. But yeah, seeing this progress and it's been three months and the people following are like, this is amazing. You've done such an amazing job. And I'm going to do a post about it later, but I didn't do anything. I just didn't force her. I literally don't change my life. Like I still go about my day. She's around us. She's around my other dogs. Murphy's an incredible foster brother. He just is the village idiot. So he makes everyone happy, including the old dogs. And Lucy's done the work. I don't want to say this in condescending or egotistical way, but when people say, oh, you're an angel or wow, you've done such a good thing, I really didn't do anything. I was just here. You know what I mean? Like I'm not an angel. I'm no perfect human. I just let the dog be in my house and I don't force anything. I don't understand why more people don't do it. It actually baffles me that people think that what I do is so amazing. I'm like, it's actually like I didn't, I'm not Richard Branson. I didn't just go to space. I totally get what you're saying. Just like all I did was provide this animal with a safe space where they could just, yeah, where they could just be okay. And and the healing happened on its own after that. It was very, it's very easy if you just provide the animals with the very found the very basic foundations of just a good life. Give them a space where they can be happy and not hurt. I love the solar rescuer aspect of everything because I think so many people are so precious about my organization, what I'm doing and things like that. But it just sounds like you're like, I did this thing 
you should do it too. Here are the tools to do this. And we're in such a wonderful modern day and age where it's like, everyone's on YouTube university at this point where we're all learning new things every day. That's so incredible. Yeah. Since we founded in 2015, a lot more similar groups have started. And I'm not saying I started that or we, but I think we did influence that because you'll see if you look, well, you won't, but if you looked back at the social media and Facebook communities here in Bali 10 years or not 10 years ago, seven years, six years ago, it was, there wasn't much that stood out. But now if you go on, all the photos are really good. Everyone's wearing a cute little bandana or bow tie or, and the wording's very similar. And I mean, I created competition because it is still a competitive market and I'm not going to lie. Like rescue is the same as any business. You are competing for something, but it's not the ego chase for me. It's the trying to get that home, trying to get that donation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, educating others on how to do it is really important because we can't take them all in. Right. Yeah. And even um, now, which is awesome, the locals are messaging us and asking for support. There's there's certain areas we won't support. We don't help with pets, like pets. Say they've got a pedigree poodle or something and they're asking for help. We don't help for that because if we do that, we're opening up a whole can of worms of what we're helping. Like we're really about the homeless animal. Uh, So there's, there's food. So we did create a food bank at the start of the COVID situation and that was really successful. We stepped away from that because, again, we're going too far off our target of what our mission is. But that program is still running by another group. You know, like locals will message us because they've seen the transformations and be like, my dog's got no hair. What do I do? I'm like, coconut oil and neem. Like, it's amazing. Get that onto them. Or like stuff they have access to. Mm -hmm. Well, they have access to vets. It's just financially um, restrictive to some. But another girl messaged me last night saying that they found a street dog. They took it to the vet. It's got no hair. And can we help? And I said, look, we can't take it. But this is how we can help you. Like, we're happy to fund the medical because you've done something amazing. And it's really about nurturing the solo rescuer. And if you see on our resource page, the first thing I say is just breathe. I know this is really overwhelming what's just happened because you've stumbled across five puppies on the road. Like, it's like, what the hell? Like, I don't even know where to start. But you just have to stop and breathe and just step through it and rescue now, think later. Don't think about what ifs because you won't do anything. You won't move forward. But once you get through and you've rehomed five puppies, you'll be like, holy cow this is possible. Like I can do it again. And it felt amazing. I feel like what you're saying too, like, it feels so like, especially to us in California right now, it feels so fantastical and you're in Bali and it's like, and if we were walking the streets of Bali and we saw puppies, we should rescue them. But I love what you're saying too, because kind of echoes what we've heard from some other rescuers. Like, Hey, did you just find a dog who's probably just lost? Like, hold on to that dog for a minute, like get it scanned, get the microchip, see what you can do there. Because if you just turn it into a shelter, the clock is running then. Yeah. And as soon as the clock starts running, it's they're on borrowed time at a certain point. And who knows if their owners have even noticed the dog is lost at this point, just escaped. So it's like, what you're saying is is so impactful, even in those in suburban areas. (laughs) Yeah. Just stop and think about it for a second. And really is what you're trying to get to, like if you've got an appointment or you're meeting a friend for a coffee, is that really more important than a life? Mm-hmm. There's many a times I've gone out for dinner or had an appointment and I'm an hour late and they've got a manic message going, dude, I just found this and I've had to go here. And they're like, yeah, okay. But I mean, we're blessed with barley time. Everyone's very flexible here. Like 
it's a known thing. Oh, it's just barley time. They'll be here eventually. I think it's kind of funny. I've heard the term a little while ago called wish cycling. And they talk about it with like bottles and trash and things like that, where you kind of put something in a can and you hope it's going to be recycled or you hope it's going to go somewhere good. And I feel like people do that with animals. They're like, I'm turning it into the shelter. And in my head, I'm like, I did a good thing. And I hope things turn out okay. Instead of like following through and thinking through like, hey, maybe that's not the case. Maybe just take a breath, like you said, and give them a little extra time, do what they need to do or for someone to find them. I don't know what I'd do if I was living in the States or Australia, because I don't actually know. You'd have to teach me how to help a dog if I found it. But I would take it home. Like I'd take it home first and just be like, okay, I got it safe. It's behind a fence. It can't get hit by a car. And then Google. Oh, and that's the other thing. Google people. Everyone has a phone in their hand. Google. Find out where a vet is. Like I get so many messages of some of the most ridiculous messages. My dog has fleas. What do I do? Uh, Google. Like it's easy. Power of Google. Oh, my God. Where's a vet in Bali? It's called Google. Like it's there. Like we're not on Mars. Like Indonesia does have vet clinics and they're actually on the map. I'm curious because in your time right now, it's July 15th, but we're July 14th. I'm wondering, does the new CDC ban apply to you at all or impact any of the work you're doing? Well, actually from Bali, it's illegal to export dogs. So this is a whole nother, like I've literally chose, I didn't choose, but I guess I did unknowingly chosen the hardest place in the world to live when it comes to animals. One, the amount of them that are around that need help. And then two, getting them out of the country. Coming from Australia, I mean, that's now why I reside here and the charity's registered because I can't get home. I can't get my dogs home. So there's, why not just create a charity and keep rescuing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Bali has a ruling that it's illegal to cross the border from Bali into the other mainlands or other islands that aren't within that district. But it does, yes, absolutely affect the rest of Indonesia. So Jakarta, I think actually really sad that it's happened because I, I don't know if you guys can confirm this, but I heard that there was only a few cases in the last six years of dogs coming in with rabies or suspected rabies. And now it's just blocked everyone. But I mean, it's sadder for the for expats who have worked in Asia or worked in one of those countries and they can't bring their pet home. So it doesn't really affect us because we can't get dogs out. Well, it sounds like you had your own ban the entire time. Exactly. We've been struggling through it for years. There have been workarounds, but we don't do that as a not-for-profit. There are ways to do it. I know one of the main projects that you're working on that, you know, we're, we're helping fundraise for and whatnot is the building of your healing center. I mean, I'm sure there's many motivators behind it, but would that be a motivator as well? Because animals can't leave the country you're in. So you need a space, like a safe space where these animals can go. Yeah, no, the main motivator for it is we can offer much better care when they're within our care. And look, vet clinics are great for what they're for. They're for for fixing animals up for that immediate, but for the long-term care and love and silence and quality food, we can't control that when they're in a clinic. And they are literally in cages because that's what vet clinics are, right? And usually in other places, you take your dog to a clinic, it might have an operation and it stays in overnight and it comes home again. But what happens here is you don't have anywhere to put it. So people have had dogs in clinics for months 
we don't do that. Like at the start, when I first started, I did not have anywhere to put them. So clinics was it. And that's expensive. That's, I've talked US dollars, I guess it's like $6 a night to keep a dog in there just to be in that cage. And I mean, that's when that's per month, you could have a rental for that with 20 dogs, right? Since becoming a charity and now one of our board directors lives here as well, Julie is an incredible mentor around holistic healing and we want to do integrative medicine now. We really want to focus on the whole animal, not just, oh, it's got kennel cough, let's just give it antibiotics or, oh, it's got a wound, we'll just give it antibiotics and stitch it up or whatever. We'll obviously do integrative medicine. We still need pharmaceutical. But their food is really important. So we give them raw food diets. We give them extra supplements like moringa and coconut oil and turmeric. And we give them oil massages. So we have a lot of scabies and mange and skin conditions and fungal. And that's common because their immune system. So what I've learned is when their immune system is so low, their hair falls out. So an analogy, you eat McDonald's every day, your hair's going to fall out, your skin's going to go bad, right? So it's the same. And through the Healing Centre, we're going to be able to implement what we know, but we're also going to be able to educate people online about what we're doing, which again, since being on Instagram, which is pretty new to me, honestly, like I haven't been on the Instagram train for long, but it's interesting to see the engagement we get from people about what we're feeding and what we're doing and what we're washing with. So we use neem shampoos, not the chemical shampoos. So we're going to have a lot more control over the healing of the animal once they're in the healing centre. We're going to have therapy music. We're going to be ensure that they've got silence at night to sleep, especially those that are really needing quiet time. Yeah, just really rethinking how you rehabilitate an animal. If you're sick, you don't want to be in a noisy, stinky hospital, right? You want to be at home in your fresh linen, eating soup, sleeping as much as you can. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's really what we're now going to create for the animals. And then through this, we're going to create a much better animal, a much healthier animal for adoption. And we're going to know their story a lot closer than at the moment we go rescue either to my house or Julie's house. And then we get the vet involved after we've had them for a few days to decompress, unless there's obviously an emergency involved. If it's just a skin condition, we bring them home. You know, we monitor them and see what's going on. And then they'll move to foster care if we've got availability or they stay with me and Julie until we can adopt them. So we also have a cap on how many we take in, obviously, because there's only so many I can live with. There's only so many that fit in my bedroom, really, at night. (laughs) (laughs) I love what you're saying, too, because all these like different holistic cares. I mean, we're in the heart of like Los Angeles here. So what you're talking about sounds very like fancy. But what you're saying is actually sounds like actually very affordable and doable for normal everyday people, probably more affordable even than like toxin-filled shampoos and things like that in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got it on tap here because we're in Bali. And another, well, we've partnered now, well, we've created an Indonesian charity. They're called Yayasan's here. So Yayasan Project Paduli, which is Project Care. And within this, it's all going to be about education. But one of my key things I want to focus on is what can the local community access to create a similarly quality uh, diet for their animal that they can afford or shampoo that they can use that they can afford. And there's so many natural remedies their grandparents know or their parents know that they've lost that can help skin conditions. There's so much we need to learn. Like we don't, obviously here, 
people shop at the at the traditional markets. So the traditional market here already has all the produce an animal can eat, but people don't know which things to buy or how to make a balanced diet and that kind of thing. On that note, when you look at the barley dog and the street dogs, they eat really well because they actually already eat what the owners eat. And then Western marketing's come in saying, oh, no, pedigree is the best food and the kibble's really good. And then we all know, well, most people who have gone down that rabbit hole know how bad it is. So actually the barley dogs are really well kept because they're already eating off the plate that the, the family, like they're eating the same food as the family. Mm-hmm. It's kind of contradictory what I'm saying, but some dogs are in really bad state because they're not getting the nutrients they need or the family aren't feeding them because they think they should be feeding them pedigree when actually what they were doing already was the best thing for them. They used to, so back in the day were the trash cleaners because all the trash was organic matter. There was no plastic. There was no packaging. Everything was in banana leaves and decomposed stuff. So they'd snip through that and eat that, and that's how they survived. That's how, and they stayed strong and healthy because they were already getting everything they needed. But then obviously you've introduced crappy food, sugar, GMO, packaging, all of that. And so now it's really hard for them to maintain their health, the healthy standard. Circling back to the healing centre, we really, and the Yayasan, we really want to try and create content that educates the local community on how they can care for their pet really easily. Like it doesn't have to be overcomplicated, doesn't have to be overly priced. Even simple things like how to touch your dog, like we'll go into compounds to sterilise and no one can touch, can touch the dog. And we're like, what? They're like, oh, galak, which means aggressive. And then we could go up to it and touch and we're like, oh, your dog's not aggressive, like I can touch it. It's just education around how to handle an animal, how to get a puppy used to being washed. Because if you don't wash it, it's, it's always going to be stressed out then, like if you wait too long. It sounds really simple, but it is, but it's complicated here. There's so many different facets of helping animals here that you just don't expect. Every day is an, yeah, an adventure. I mean, I love so much the idea that like simple fixes make a world of difference though. I mean, even... Just for us, we were just visiting an animal shelter last week and they had the most friendly kittens I've ever met in my whole life. And I'm 100% certain it's because they get touched so many times a day by so many different people. And they were just like, so sweet. And I'm just like, that's such a simple fix that people don't think about. Like you could volunteer and just play with kittens. (laughs) Like that could be your volunteering. Yeah. Human engagement is so important, especially for adoptability, of course. Yeah. I love the idea too that I think when a lot of people think of holistic diets or raw diets or anything that's not going to be as simple as kibble, they think it's going to be expensive. They think it's going to take a very long time to prepare. They think that there's just going to be a lot of responsibility, for lack of a better word, when it comes to providing your dog that. So I love that you're saying, no, there is a very simple way that you can do it. There is a cheap way you can do it. There is a very accessible way in which you can provide your pet with the best possible nutrients and resources it needs, it doesn't have to be so complicated. Because I, I do think that is like a, a modern day myth that it, it does have to be something like very extensive and I don't know, complicated. And assuming that the company that have made the kibble must have done research about what's good for my pet. And they No, they're looking what's good for their margins. They're not really, they're going to cut back on stuff. There are some, I correct, I'm sorry, where we are, you know, there's not that many fantastic kibble brands. 
There's a lot of raw brands now coming out though. That's been a huge trend here, which is really great, but it has been associated with expense. But honestly, here you can access a lot of stuff more affordably than anywhere else in the world. And that's the thing, like a chicken neck, you give your dog a chicken neck, that's it. Mm -hmm. It's got its bone, it's got its muscle, it's got the meat, it's got so much in it, it fills them up. It's simple. You don't actually, it's easier than kibble, like it's one movement, not two scoops, it's just like. But then you've got the raw food situation and people are weird handling raw food. So there's a lot to break through to get someone to transition to that. And then what we've got here too is a lot of vegans and vegetarians. So they have a really hard time dealing with raw. Anyway, again, that's like another three podcasts. Let us know a little bit then about how the past year has been for you. Like, it sounds like you did this food bank. I love that you said too, that you saw that it wasn't really your main lane. And so you kind of started it, passed it off to someone else and moved back into your lane and kind of refocused. Is there anything else that went on during COVID? I mean, you're in a whole other side of the world. We don't even know what happened over there. <laughs> yeah, well, Indonesia is going through a really bad time right now. So the Delta strain has come in. So now we're in lockdown. But for the past year and a half, honestly, you wouldn't know there was that much going on here. Personally, I haven't been affected by COVID. I don't know anyone that's had it here. I don't know anyone in Australia that's had it, actually. The only reason you know something's going on is there's no tourists here. So that's absolutely tragic for the local community because you've got men that are usually drivers that have got no income and then the ladies who would be working in shops or whatever, you know, they they don't have an income and that really hurts because I don't know how they survive. I guess the one blessing here is that they live in compound. So there's always someone in the compound that can support them. Like someone in the compound has a job to support everyone but it's such a burden. And regarding the, the charity side of it, honestly, I was talking to a friend the other day that it kind of has been, it's kind of been nice to reset or to just calm down. Like we've been able to stop and really think and really focus. And when it first started and we did the food bank and the panic and the chaos, I just, I stepped into that space and I helped another group set it up and branding. And then it got complicated with, people and ego and I was like you know what this isn't even like my passion project like this is your passion project you run it you control it I'm out like I can't I can't deal with hostile people what we do I mean you'd know this in rescue there's a lot of politics between people and that's something I don't want to step into because there's enough the dogs are suffering enough they don't need us being behaving badly behind the scenes so anyway I stepped away from that and really we focused on the healing center and the dog park so we found the land but typical me, not only, I'm an Aries, right? So we do things really hard, really hard. Like we always have to choose the hardest bloody thing to do. So I not only live in a country and on an island that's got the worst animal welfare issues, you can't get the dogs out. I can't go home with my dogs. And then I launched a fundraiser just as COVID hit. So that was awesome. We're a quarter of the way through the fundraiser, which has been fantastic. And look, the thing is too, if you have a dream, that's great. But if you don't put it into action, it's never going to happen. So we've got $100,000 still to pay on the land that we're leasing because you can only lease land here. You can't own it to make another complicated hurdle. And we're a quarter of the way through paying that off. And there's no way we're going to fundraise and save $200,000, right? So we had to bite the bullet and just go, we're getting this land. And we just have to believe we're going to pay it off. And we're going to have to believe we're going to build. And 
from that, and I, this is so woo-woo and it's so Bali and I'm not that person, but it really does happen here. If you put an intention out and you positively think around it, it happens. So when I created Mission Pausable, I always wanted to be on the dodo and that would have been my ultimate goal, right, to be on the dodo. Well, we've been on there six times now and we've got a monthly spot with them. And, like, I'm in contact with the editors and I've just said to them, whatever you want, we will give it. Your exposure helps us so much to be able to achieve our goals. And they're like, oh, no, but you're amazing. I'm like, well, no, I'm not. <laughs> You've got all these people that are, and then you're, they're dog people that are going to turn into followers that will turn into donors. And that's how I, on the business side, and that's another topic we can chat about, but the business side of running a charity is really, really important. You have to run it like a business. You can't run it like hand to mouth, like, oh God, there's another dog that needs $100, I need $100. You need to have a goal and a plan. So our plan of having the healing centre has been the ultimate dream and it's going to be custom, we've designed it, it's going to be custom built. We're not going to be trying to fit out something that's existing. We're going to have all the plumbing done properly. We're going to have the soundproofing done properly. We're going to have the kitchen set up properly because we need our job to be easier. We don't need it to be harder. And I think the other thing in the charity space is that you have to look like you're doing it hard to warrant being supported. Whereas I'm really, again, trying to change that. I don't have to live like a stray dog to prove my worth. I can show you through the work that we do that the animals are worth it. Like they do deserve a nice space to be and they don't need to be in a wire cage with a rusty floor. Like they're allowed to be treated like they would if they got adopted because that's ultimately where we want them to be. And if we're not projecting the image of what we want them to go into, they're not going to get it. So yeah, the healing center and, and COVID and the fundraiser, I'm freaking out for sure. I'm freaking out. But if I don't do it now, we're never going to do it. If it's not COVID, it'll be something else. Like when I actually, when I first launched the campaign for the dog part, the Australian fires started. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was most of our followers. I'm like, I'm not asking Australia for money. Half our country's burning down. Like it feels really poor taste for me to be like, oh, and over here in Bali, we want to build a cute dog park. So we're just pushing forward. We've just got to believe in it. we just got to make sure we get it done. And, and we need people to realise by the time we've got the healing centre, the amount of animals we will have helped within the centre, but how many more people we're activating and educating online and how many more people are coming through and seeing. And once the tourism gets back, people seeing what adoption means and maybe they'll go home to their country and adopt. You know what I mean? Like it's not we're saving only 30 dogs a month within our centre. How? What's the, like what the dodo does, what you guys are doing, you're changing the mindset of people about rescue. I think that's really important. We want the breeders to be put out of business or the backyard breeders, you know, the unregulated ones, because we want people to be educated about what they're, one, how much of a responsibility a pet is in the first so much first place like it's huge and then the breed you're getting and then where you're getting it from it is so interesting too I feel like there are so many rescuers who are so passionate and because they're so passionate about what the work they're doing it's like they give a discount on their work and it's like when really they should probably be like you know what's retail and then add some tax to that instead of just being like well I'll just give it to you because at the end of the day, that's not sustainable. And then you're cutting yourself off at the knees and also depleting yourself emotionally and financially. And suddenly you're in dire straits and suddenly you're the stray on the street, right? Exactly. And I got to that point. Like I got really down that that hole where I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't even enjoying life in general, right? Because if I don't have my solid foundations in place for me personally, but if I burn out, 
everyone burns out. So if I burn out, my team burns out, the dogs don't get helped and that's no use to anyone. But there is a lot around rescuers, especially here. How do I put it? That, I mean, look, we live in Bali. It's pretty beautiful. You can go to a restaurant for not a lot and it looks like you're in five star. And then there's a lot of judgment that can come around that. And then it's attached to your charity. So personally, I don't show what my life is except for with the dogs because I don't want people to make assumptions about me and my life. I'm actually, I actually have several businesses that I run as well, but people don't know about that to support my life. And the charity is my passion project. I think that's really important too, that you can do both and you're entitled to do both. You don't have to look like a stray dog to save stray dogs. You don't have to have your house filled with dogs because you've got the space. That's not sensible. And then again, running running a rescue or a charity or even a solo rescue, you need to run it like a business. You need to make sure you have the money to spend on other stuff that's just not vet bills. Because my other argument is, why does the vet get paid, but no one else should? Why does the pet shop make profit? Why does the vet make profit? Why does my driver get profit? Why does the petrol station get, like, why does the vaccine, cut? like, I can go on and on and on. Everyone else gets paid except for the rescuers. I don't get paid because I'm on the board, but we have staff now that do get paid and they're worth it. They're worth every single dime because they are doing work that helps grow the charity to get more exposure, to get more money and to help more animals. But you can't help more animals without more support. It's a revolving wheel. Mm -hmm. It's so wonderful to hear you say that. It is because we certainly think all of our rescuers who we work with, I mean, there are so many of them and they're balancing so many different jobs and different things so that they're able to support their passion project. And it's like, just because you love it doesn't mean you shouldn't be paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in some fashion, obviously, we don't want to encourage donations going to the wrong area. But I mean, I think it's important that you have a sustainable organization. Yeah. And that was why I was really adamant about being registered. And before I went on the dodo. I said to them, I want to be registered before you highlight us and what we do because I want to be transparent. And if anyone wants to go and go meet, you can go straight to the website and check it out. Like the Australian tax, you can go there, like go check it out. Like it's fine because I've got nothing to hide, but I really wanted to make sure we were registered before big exposure happened because I think it's really important. And it's important for the donors. I wish some donors in general did a bit more due diligence on who they're supporting and what they're supporting because there are some rescue groups wherever in the world that I don't think people would agree with the way the animals are treated, for example. Mm. So if you don't agree with the way someone's doing something, you're basically enabling them to keep doing it because there's also the other side of rescue where it's addictive. Again, that's another podcast, but there's the hoarding mentality. There's the I'm the, I'm the best person for this animal. No one else can do such a job. And letting go of your rescue is hard, but you can't rescue more. Really, you shouldn't rescue more unless you can move them out. But some people keep moving just more and more in. So, and then they need more donations and more food. And it's like, well, what are you supporting here? Because having dogs in cages or lying on top of each other or with feces everywhere, that's not a life for an animal. I think it's so important. And I mean, I'm so glad to hear so much of your experience in yeah. nonprofit is coming from your experience as like, you're like, I'm a business owner. I think that's so wonderful. We definitely want to have you back, but I know we're hitting a certain time limit and I don't want to go too far here. I do have a couple of kind of ender questions for you though. Sure. And I know you've kind of already said this first one here, but I'm wondering 
is there an animal welfare group that you really love and that you're really passionate about, like the work they're doing or that you've partnered with that really that you have like a bit of a, a crush on or? Can it be the dodo? Because I mean, they highlight so many rescues. I mean, like Cuddly too, your platform's incredible and I'm honoured to be, oh. I was invited in and then also now I'm here talking to you guys. I think any platform that encourages individuals to make a difference is really the best. I don't follow, actually don't follow rescue groups because I have enough trauma from what I already do. I also don't want to see more, but I also don't want to, again, go get distracted from my mission and what I'm trying to do, if that makes sense. It does. So yeah, I don't actually follow rescue groups. Soy Dogs has, was one of the first I ever followed and I actually visited them in Phuket and I was really impressed with their setup. And I was living here at the time, so I did come back with some ideas for the shelter here that I was volunteering for. So they've always been amazing and they've always been incredibly smart business-wise and social media-wise and registration-wise. Like they're registered in many different countries to ensure they can get donations from all different currencies. Like that's so smart. But that's a huge network that you need to have. So for a rescue group, I'd say soy for sure. It's so funny that you say that because when we brought him on to uh, John Daly from Soy Dog, the, one of the first things he was telling us was this idea of like founder syndrome of like being so precious and like, I'm the one that needs to save everything and not wanting to give up controls. And he was like, and my whole organization is around this, like, yes, empower everyone to do the work they need to do so that this organization lasts long beyond me and into the future. So sounds like you walked away with that ethos. <laughs> Yeah, I should actually talk to him and get him to mentor me a bit, I think, because he's, yeah, he's amazing. He and his wife done incredible things. Yeah. He's wonderful. Yeah. Our final question we always ask, and I know it might be putting you on the spot here, but is there some sort of life motto that you live by or mantra or something? Every rescue mission is possible. That's our tagline. I like that. Yeah, that was our first ever tagline that every rescue mission is possible because if I went into any situation and was like, I can't do this, there isn't. There's never been a situation where I'm like, I can't handle this. There's always a solution to everything. So no matter how hard it is. And I think like one of my other things from it is that I'm there for the, like sometimes you have to be really super nice to people to get what you want in general in life. But when it comes to an animal, you have to put it on extra thick, right? So I'll be so nice to people and whatever, but it's about the animal. I'm not, I I often say I'm not here to make friends. And if I do, that's unreal, but that's not why I'm there to help an animal. So even though I might be really sweet and kind and whatever to the people that are involved with the animal or who were surrendering it or who have abused it, I treat them with kindness and love and I just want to get the animal out. So that's when every rescue mission is possible. You just need to work out how to navigate through each one because everyone's so different. Absolutely. Such a good thing to think through too, especially for those that are extra hard or that can feel overwhelming. I think that's a great message. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for chatting with us. I mean, I feel like I'm cutting you short here, but I feel like it's, it was so wonderful to, to connect. And it was, I feel like I'm walking away with some good takeaways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. It's great for our organization and it's great to share and again, hopefully inspire others. Yeah. It was so incredibly delightful to have Prue on today. She had so many wonderful business tips for every nonprofit 
I mean, honestly, even every for-profit, as far as aligning your design and staying in your lane. If you want to learn a little bit more about Mission Possible, you can check our show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.